If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Yo, and welcome to the 67th episode of Lake of Rage, a Pokemon trading card game podcast. I'm your host, as always, Kevin Clementi, a.k.a. Mellow underscore Magikarp. I'm joined today by two very special temporary guest hosts. Joining us for the first time, we have Charlie Lockyer. Nice to meet you guys. And we have, coming from a rival podcast, despite the podcast being complete trash, we have brought him on here, co-host of the Trash Lounge podcast, Mike Fouché. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to it. So I've got a very special episode for you all today. As you can tell by the title, we're going to be talking about how to be successful in day one of Worlds. So whether you are going to be in day one like myself, or you have aspirations to make Worlds next year, hopefully you're going to be able to get some good information out of this one. We're going to be talking a little bit about how Worlds is different from other regionals, talk about metagaming for day one, and then just some general tournament tips because both of these members on our call are incredibly successful Pokemon trading card game players. In fact, let's go ahead and have themselves introduce themselves. So Charlie, can you give us a little bit how long you've been playing and what are some of your accomplishments? Absolutely. Thank you. Um, so my name is Charlie Lockyer. I've been playing Pokemon for almost 12 years now, which is kind of crazy to think about. Um, I've been, I played in four worlds now. One was in seniors, the other three in masters, um, made day two at three of those, uh, I got top 32 in, at Worlds in 2019, um, top eight at a few regionals, got ninth at a regionals this year. Um, yeah, I've just been playing, and I like to play fun, stupid decks a lot, too. <laughs> so I have to go off of that one, then. Which is your favorite, quote-unquote, fun, stupid deck? Well, that's, that's a tough one. Um, probably, honestly, like, some of them have become mainstream decks. Like, I was one of the first people to play Bulu, which is <laughs> too, much, too much fun, but... Uh, um, the, my favorite one probably Poipolstall. I played that at the regionals once. Yeah. I should have made day two, but I played terribly. I it was a really good deck in that format. Oh, the Poipolstall that was the one where it took three energies, it was like zero energy attack. That's so zero prize card. <laughs> I remember seeing a post of that. It was probably your post then. It's just like this thing is ridiculous. How and why and but kudos being brave enough to bring that to a tournament. Maybe that's something we'll get to later too. Uh, what was what was that Zoroark deck that you played, Charlie? That was oh, like that one. oh yes, that was that was ridiculous. I cannot yeah. believe I made day two at that <laughs> um, event. It was literally just four four Zoroark. I played a one one Pyroar line. I played Galissapod. I played Gengar and Mimikyu GX and Alolan Muck. It was just a complete mess. But I was trying to get all four types of the Blend Energy um, <laughs> to use to have access to all of them. But then I didn't even play Blend Energy in the deck because Rainbow Energy was better, so you could like attach than Acerola. <laughs> <laughs> it was that's beautiful so you just kept it all even though you're like okay i'm gonna play blend energy and then you're like wait rainbow's better but you're like yeah whatever these types work yeah and they well yeah pyro was just a hard counter pika rom in that meta it was literally just hard counter the four de the decks i expected <laughs> that's actually like really relevant to right now too if you think about the like the current mm -hmm. meta games like there's like four decks to beat so kind of genius mm -hmm. 
Mike, what about you? What are some of your accomplishments? How long you've been playing, etc.? I've been playing on and off for a very long time. Uh, my first competitive season was the 2003-2004 season. Uh, I haven't played competitively every single season since then, but uh, I played a bunch of worlds back then. I played uh, most of the worlds from 2004 through 2008. I think I missed one of them. And then I kind of took a competitive break while I was in college. And then I came back for the 2014-2015 season, and I played Worlds 2015, 16, 17, 18 of those four. I also made day two, three out of those four times. Uh, and then I took uh, the 2018-2019 season off. All right, I played a little bit, but not that much. Uh, and then I'm hoping to play again next season. I was um, planning on going to London when it was 2020. I was in a position to, to get an invite, but... Um, didn't really play too much since events came back. Uh, it, you know, since I've been playing for a really long time, I've done a lot of different things. With the thing that I'm probably most proud of, uh, I top four U.S. Nationals in 2008, the Gardevoir year. Um, more recently, I got second at uh, Philadelphia Regionals a couple of years ago. Uh, I've made a couple of top eights at other regionals besides that. Um, most recently, I was made the global finals for one of the Players' Cups over the pandemic, which was very cool. So as you can tell from both of those resumes, there's a reason I've invited both of these on here. They are significantly more accomplished than me. And that's why we're going to talk about a question that I'm super curious about, because I've compared to both of you, I've only been playing for, I think, three, four years or something like that. And I've only been to one world. So this is a very selfish podcast because I'm curious <laughs> about this question, potentially more than all of our audience members. But let's talk about worlds and how it's different because it is a different setup than all of the regionals so again pretend you're not talking to me you're talking to people who don't know what they're doing how is worlds set up differently than a regional is and then charlie can you go ahead and run us through that one yeah absolutely um well for day one i mean day one that you have a hard like match points cut off which you kind of have it at a regionals except there's less rounds and it's always like even if there's more rounds it's scaled to where you always have to go x2 so at like one more round adds three match points to the thing. So regardless, you're going X2 or X03 if you want to make it. And also if you just like, or if you're, if you get to that match points number, they're just going to drop you. It's straight up just make sure you do this by the end of the day or, or uh, you're out. So it's kind of different than those where you really just need to hit that exact number. And that's really all that matters because you gain no advantage by doing better in day one than someone else who went X2 going to day two. Um, that's the biggest difference in setups. And then when you go to day two, Recently, it's been like seven or eight round tournaments, which is kind of similar to a seniors regionals if you've played in those, um, where you have to go X11 to make top eight, and you just cut straight to that, and there's like 128-ish players um, in those events. Not sure if that'll be the same this year um, with the increase in day two slots. The Apparently over 100 from the East Asian regions are getting day two invites automatically. So it could be a nine plus five event, but I don't think that changes the fact that Worlds is still a very different event overall. Yeah. The and the biggest thing for day one is tying is really bad. Like really, 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 really bad. I can't emphasize how bad it is. Um, one of the three years that I made it, I actually did go 5.03, but like I do not recommend that as a path <laughs> to, to doing that because as soon as you tie once, it's, it's essentially a, a loss, right? Um, unless you get three ties. And... So like the first tie that I had that year was against Michael Diaz. 
and it was a game three. He, you know, we, I don't know. We just didn't like work anything out. And then once you get your first tie, the second one's a little bit better. Um, and then I ended up, uh, you know, being XO2 until the very last round. And then I got paired with Premois and we just ID'd, which was great. But don't recommend it. X2 is much better um, because you can, if you just talk with your opponent generally, you can um, try and figure out a winner. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Also, I feel like that's even more important in this format right now because this format's like just in general slower, and it's not really just because like the games take slow more like in turns, which happen in some older formats, but it's because you need to do so many actions, especially if you're playing an Italian deck, for example. All the stuff that you have to do, like I'm sitting there playing Italian decks, and I'm like, Jesus, what do I do? I have to think about it. Like I'm usually a really fast player, but this format's especially hard to play fast in. One thing to make sure you do is learn to play fast with whatever deck you choose to play at Worlds because you need to be able to finish your rounds fast if you want to win in the event. Yeah. So I want to go off the, because, so you mentioned the, like, you know, tying stuff like that. You were able to ID the last round, being able to talk to your opponent and kind of have an agreement of not tying a match, stuff like that. Is there ever a language barrier or is there anything that's ever come up for either of you where it's like, oh, my opponent's not understanding the concept of an ID or because we're at Worlds, everyone knows the stakes and knows the situations? I think most people understand, but there definitely are language barriers. Um, I, I haven't, I've played against Japanese players, obviously, but I haven't been really in a situation against a Japanese player that has led to tying unintentionally or in a really bad spot. But I feel like they would probably be the prime candidates for not really understanding just because they play in such a different tournament structure than the rest of the world even like so like europeans and south american uh people they kind of get it because they play in the same structure that makes sense i i haven't like personally experienced that at all um I'll, probably because at the times i've made day two i've just been two two so it's <laughs> i've gotten to like the the edge pretty quickly and had to like win out from there, and then it's like, okay, we're obviously in a gentleman's agreement, which um, is, if you guys don't know what that is, you'll say to your opponent, like, okay, whoever's up at the end of the game, we're probably just going to concede to the other person. You can't enforce that at all, and you can never ask your opponent to concede, but you can, you can like, say, okay, we're, we're both going to be screwed if, if this becomes a problem, so we're obviously going to make sure somebody's winning, based on, the, like, the status of the third game. Um, I don't think I've ever had to actually use a Gentleman's at Worlds. All my games have just finished. Um, probably just because, especially, I was a younger player, and I played just so fast, probably, like, faster than you should play. <laughs> but it did help when it came to finishing rounds, um, even in tight timetables. Um, and I've played against players who might not understand the concept of a Gentleman's Agreement, but you kind of just... I feel, I feel like you don't really have to worry about it too much until you get to the point where it's like, if there becomes a problem. Yeah. And just to kind of finish off the thought, if there is like a significant language barrier, generally you can just say no tie <laughs> at the beginning <laughs> of the match. And they'll kind of, you'll just be like, no tie, no tie. And they're like, okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have a question because you are both a little more experienced about the concept of a gentleman's agreement. So I've only had one situation where we were trying to come up with a gentleman's agreement. It was at a winning into top eight of a regional and my opponent was playing control. And so there was no simple way of like, okay, how are we going to do this? We ended up never coming to a gentleman's agreement, but it never mattered. But how do you actually come to 
a consensus or what's the general idea between coming to a consensus of who receives that victory? If maybe it's not a very obvious, like my opponent's up three prizes in a Palkia mirror or something like that. I don't know. You know, how do you come up with these ideas? Um, yeah, usually for me, it's it's like you you start with the whoever's up on prizes thing, but then you brought up control is like a, a problem people have sometimes. Usually you're going to be the one conceding in that situation unless you have like either established a loop that it's like, I will win the game or you have like a way to basically checkmate the game there. We have a lot of times in my times too, it'll be like, okay, if someone on turn three of time like goes to one prize and you have two and you have boss in hand to win, they're not going to, you're not going to be conceding when you have game next turn. Um, so it's like, okay, unless someone has game in hand or someone has like a ridiculous board state advantage um, over the other player, then it's usually prizes. But the, so doing it exactly on prizes isn't very good because then you're not really playing towards like how the game would have played out, which is usually how we like to do gentlemen's agreements is like who would have actually won if we had more time. Same, yeah, I don't have, I don't have, I don't have too much to add to that. Um, I would usually go pretty strictly off prizes unless the control example where if you're the control player, maybe you try to argue for you analyze the board state. But I also think that's part of the risk of playing control that if you lose game one and you know, win a game two, and then you're down a couple prizes in game three. I don't know. I don't feel like it's super unreasonable for the other player to, the non-control player, to say that, you know, I'm up on prizes. Because that's what would happen in top cut. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know. I don't think that's unreasonable, but maybe you, as the control player, you could at least try to have the conversation. That makes a lot of sense. So let's go ahead and jump into the concept of metagaming for the world championship. So there's a couple things that are different. Number one, as you mentioned, ties are incredibly bad. Number two, you're playing against players from literally everywhere in the world. You're going to play against players from Japan, who has an entirely different meta from us. You're going to be players from LATAM, Europe, NA, and there's also players from South America, or sorry, South Africa who qualify as well, which is something, you know, there's only a couple, but it's still, that does make a, an impact, right? So how are you going to actually go about metagaming for Worlds? How are you going to make it successful? Uh, Mike, can you go ahead and start us off with that one? What are some of the things that you're thinking about going into day one? So everyone's good, right? That's a really big difference. Um, so there's really not too many... There's not really any bad lists. There's And there's very few janky decks. Um, there are... You know, a lot of people are trying to one-up everybody else, right? So everybody is also going through this metagaming process. So there is, like, a d pretty good possibility that you're going to be playing against someone that their deck is good, but you don't have very much experience against it. So you might see it as janky, but it's not, really, because they've obviously put a lot of thought into it. Um, so you kind of got to be a little prepared for the... for anything. But... In general, I feel like it's a little bit easier to metagame for Worlds comparatively to other events because you know that everyone is pretty good and they're going to bring good decks. So if they're bringing the good decks, you don't have to worry about, in this format, I don't think you have to worry about Lunatono Solrock, for example. Like, it's all over the online tournaments, but nobody's going to really play that. I mean, there's going to be a couple people, but, like, that is at a regional, if I was seeing all the results of the current online, 
I would be a little bit scared of taking a hard loss to Lunatone and Solrock. But going into day one of Worlds, if your deck takes a hard loss to Lunatone and Solrock, it's totally fine because there's going to be almost no one playing it. So can I kind of interpret that the way I think I'm hearing it? The idea is you expect people to play a lot of tier one or tier like quote unquote one and a half decks or whatever, as opposed to those like tier two. It's a little janky. It's cute, but it's definitely not as good as, you know, Arceus and Palkia. So yes, but like for sure, yes. But you also have to think about what are other people going to play to beat the tier one decks? So um, like those are the two categories of decks that I would try to beat. Like beat the tier one, try beat the tier one decks, and try to beat the things that beat the tier one decks because those are going to be the two categories of decks that are played the most. Charlie, you're nodding your head. Yes. What can you add? Yeah, I totally agree with everything you just said. Um, one thing I like to do: Worlds is the only time I feel like I only I re- really respect the other players there and like how good they are and how much thought they're putting in because I know how much thought I'm putting into the event. Um, if I'm going into an event, let's say NAIC, which just has a huge player pool, I might be like, okay, how do I beat this year? Was how do I beat Palkia? How do I beat Mew? How do I beat Arceus? It's how do you beat those three like meta decks? This time, I'm also thinking about the fact that everybody who's good has been putting a lot of time, who might be playing those decks, into trying to figure out how to beat everything else with those decks. So it's not just like, okay, no, no one's going into the event. Maybe in, there's a few in day one, but there's almost nobody in day two, hopefully once you make it there, who's going to be like, who's going to be like, okay, I'm kind of, I'm kind of done with this. I'm just going to play Palky. It's my comfort pick. There's very, very little, like, I'm just going to play a super standard, super basic meta list with absolutely no thought put into it other than I think it's kind of good, which happens a lot, even in from top players at regionals and ICs. Um, so I think instead of metagaming like direct or decks directly, which was what you do a lot of times. A lot of times you want to think more about the format like entirely as a whole and like what the strengths and weaknesses of the format are. I can talk about in 2019, this was a huge thing that we did for um, our deck building process um, was we realized that the format was in, in, inconsistent as a whole. The, there was only there were a few decks that had access to search cards because the best ones were Picarom had like electromagnetic radar and then Psychic and Dragon decks had Mysterious Treasure, but otherwise the best search cards were Cherish Ball and Pokecom. So those are not great search cards with no Ultra Ball or Quick Ball in the format. And we were like, okay, a lot of stuff that people like cook up is going to be pretty inconsistent unless it's one of these two things. So if we build a deck that can take advantage of the consistency and also like mess with other people's likely inconsistent deck building because of how the format's built, I think we can do pretty well. And that's how we came up with Pika Judge, which was just a Pika list with four Judge because everybody else was not going to build consistent decks. And that was kind of the case. A lot of we would get at least one free win around from just their decks not being good unless they also had a good Pika list or they were like a Psychic or Dragon deck that could use all the other options. So you build a deck that you know is good already and you make sure you can address like the format as a whole, even like ahead of time with other players like making creative decisions of their own. Can I just give a quick shout out to Pika Judge? Because that earned me 150 of my CP for this year's Worlds at the first three League Cups I went to. That thing was nuts. <laughs> oh yeah, we came up with the, the, the final list for that like four days ahead of the event. We've been testing Pika on forever, which is a, the a cr- good the thing cr- to talk more about. Is just like you should be set on like at least your archetype like pretty far ahead of the event in my opinion, um, but we we got to that like pretty pretty late in the game as like a okay th- this is what will actually push it over the edge of just being like a standard list that is good and yeah we're good players and can probably do well but 
other players might have already been thinking, how do we beat standard Pikaram and have their own tricks up their sleeve? And we have to figure out how to disrupt that, even if we don't know what they are. Let me build off something that Charlie said as well. So you were saying that uh, something about if people are going to play a tier one deck, they're going to try to build it to beat all you know, beat the other stuff, which is absolutely true. And I think a, a good concrete example of that is looking back at like Justin Kulas and Pramowat's Arceus and Talion list from NAIC. They ran double rod, double pal pad, um, which in theory helps a lot in the mirror and uh, helps the Palkia matchup, I would say. And so if I'm preparing for worlds, if like, let's say that, you know, we didn't know about that, those texts in Arceus and Talion. If I'm preparing for worlds, and I think that my deck, you know, beats Arceus and Talion, but I'm not testing against that. Like, you need to figure that out yourself, even if you're not playing Arceus and Talion. You need to figure out that the people that are going to play Arceus and Talion are going to play things like that to help them beat other things. That they are going to make these variations, and then you need to kind of prepare for that as well, if that kind of makes sense. Um, further to add on that real quick, I'm just remembering 2017 where I tested a ton and we did a lot of these things. Honestly, it was for Gardevoir. It was the, I, I played Rampagard, but and we knew we weren't playing Gardevoir. I don't think we liked it as like a consistent option. But we tested against so many different variants of Gardevoir, especially with cards like Wonder Energy in it, which is really important because our main counter was we played Tapu Fini GX, which was super good in that matchup. Um, but it... Like Wonder Energy could mess with it, so we had to make sure we had access to. I think we played we played at least one E Hammer, and we also played Flare Grunt in the day two list in order to make sure we could handle like if they throw Wonder Energy on it, like we just don't beat them unless we have a way to disrupt that. And we knew the people were going to play that because they wanted to counter. I think there were there was at least one other like major effective an attack that they wanted to block with with Wonder Energy, even if they weren't blocking our effect, they were blocking another one. So they would put it in their deck, and we didn't want a tech that might have been for something else to inadvertently mess with us. So we had to test against all the different variants of Gardevoir and make sure that we could actually handle them with the same strategy, or else we weren't going to end up beating the ones that showed up who were like, okay, how do we beat these Drampagard lists? So what percent of testing goes towards like the net deck from NAIC type decks, where it's like the straightforward vanilla ARC intel versus goes towards the I'm expecting players to innovate in this specific way, their ARC intel list? Because it feels like this is a type of deck where it's going to show up, right? It's a matter of what does a 60 look like. So what what energy are you putting into the players are going to net deck because they think it's optimal already versus the players are going to add a little bit of spice to it because they think it's going to happen? Um, well, honestly, I think one of the big things we do we do is just, or in my testing, it's like I we trust our own like abilities as a group to come up with those things. And we're going to test every deck or at least every deck we put give any respect to is going to get some testing. So we're going to try to figure out those like spicy things for our decks. And it's like, okay, now we have this interesting tech. Who knows, maybe someone else came up with it. And we need to make sure we can handle our own decks, basically metagaming against ourselves sometimes, which is a double-edged sword because if you go too far down that road, you can be like metagaming four events ahead with within your own group. And then everyone shows up with nothing you thought of. And you have two, and you like over prepared for those texts. But a lot of times, the you can figure out those small optimizations by just playing games yourself and trying to be like the. If you're trying to beat a deck with your your deck, you can you can try to optimize the other deck you're trying to beat as well, and learn more about what that player might be trying to do in order to beat your strategies. And then you can you you might not get exactly what everyone else is thinking of, but you're at least on the same thinking path of them.
Yeah, and to add to that, I wouldn't worry too much about playing against every little tech that something like Arceus Intellion could play, but I would make sure to play against lists that play the tech or two that is good against your deck, right? So, like, if I'm playing... I don't know, bad example, but let's say I'm playing Lunatone Solrock. I don't care if the Arceus Intellion is texting or teching uh, Starmie, for example. Like, that doesn't matter. It doesn't make a difference in the matchup one way or the other. What does make a difference in that matchup is do they play one or two Palpat? Do they play one or two Sharon's Care? Like, those are really big differences. And so you really just need to, kind of like Charlie said, like, try and metagame against yourself a little bit with certain archetypes. I mean, for what it's worth, Starmie would hit a Solrock very hard, or a Lunatone very hard. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that makes a lot of sense. So let's get dive into the testing part a bit, because Charlie said at one point, like, we'll get back to that. Well, let's, let's go and get back to that, because I saw yesterday, I think it was Finnegan Lynch tweeted out, I've got my deck for Worlds, now to test it against everything. I replied, I've got like six decks that I'm still deciding between, and six is also like even more if you consider different cards and things like that in it. How far in advance are you deciding on an archetype? And then what are you doing with that archetype as you keep going forward and you've decided on it? Um, yeah, first of all, I actually, um, multiple, many years ago, I tested with Finn and I, knowing him, I believe him. He <laughs> definitely has like at least gotten kind of close, but it might be something like Suicune, which he played the second into regionals, which is like a really high skill cap deck that you can get so good at and then just beat people by being better than them. Even if like all the other players are good, if you're so good at a specific deck, you can still outplay players at Worlds all the time. Um, for me, I'm trying to think... My my process is really interesting because one of the first things I do is we have this like spreadsheet I made in 2017 that we use and we put 20 decks versus 20 decks and we and we try to like do the whole matrix of matchups and then like adjust them with various things and then we get this list of like okay this should be the most playable deck this should be the best choice from that obviously that's all based on like our um, own opinions and hunches and stuff so we use that kind of to guide our testing and start the decks that start with the decks we're doing. And then it's like, okay, are these matchups that we talked about really true? Are we really like right about all these things? Cause we're not going to test all like 400 matchups in the, in the thing to make it perfect. And then we adjust from there and we work on things and mess with text and stuff to see if we're getting there. But I feel like every time I've been decided on like the archetype I'm playing at least three to four weeks in advance, I, like it's, it's been more before. And sometimes it's just been like, okay, I'm going to play this. I just need to figure out like the next 10 cards of a list instead of the last three cards of a list. And you you have a lot of room to change stuff. Like in 2018, I played Zora Control and there were like so many things you could do to mess with that deck and address other um, things in the metagame. Uh, but yeah, I, I also think that especially with high skill cap formats, like if you're going to play a deck with Inteleon in it at this Worlds, decide ahead of time. Because that is a super high skill cap deck, and you could get really good at it and just outplay people, even if everyone else is good at the event, and you just have more experience with it. I would never, ever consider picking up a deck um, the night before at a Worlds. It's just, I feel like you're throwing away your event. Even if you get lucky and it works, I just, it's not, it's not a good decision in, in the grand scheme of things. I'm someone that for regionals... I'll often pick a deck like the day before. League Cups for sure. There's been times where I've gone to like League Cups and, you know, changed my deck five minutes before the event 
you know, because I see someone, see the other good player there playing X and I want to beat X. Um, but for Worlds, I'm closer, probably not quite as extreme as you, Charlie, but much closer to that than, than my regionals. Um, I would say some years I've had a deck three or four weeks in advance. Some years I've had two decks three or four weeks in advance, but it's usually not more than two decks three or four weeks in advance. I, I would say, you know, probably about now is when I would narrow it down to at least three, and then maybe in like a week or two, narrow it down to two. Um, I think it's okay to have two decks that you're somewhat, that you're testing um, up until a few days before the event. I probably wouldn't do more than two just because you really need to learn how to play that deck extremely well, optimize it well, and you don't really have time to do that for more than two decks. Um, but yeah, more or less, I agree with uh, what Charlie said. So how many games are you playing with these decks? Are we talking hundreds of games? Are you talking like less than that, more than that? Like, like, how, mu like how much do you actually spend testing that specific deck if you're that many weeks in advance? Oh, um, for me, it's been, it's varied year to year. I'm trying to think 2016. I don't, I don't even know how my deck building this is. I was a senior. I don't really remember <laughs> how it all worked. But 2017 was the first time I went really hard for it. I played a lot of games for sure. I don't remember exactly how many. I feel like I had decided on the deck like a good maybe even four or five weeks in advance and then been like, how do I make like I know this concept is broken. So how do I make it like beat the things that are in the format consistently? Um, played a lot of games with it, got pretty good. But 2018, cause just because just I was playing a control deck that you had to play, like, you had access to every card in your deck, every card in your discard, pretty much at all times. It was like playing chess. I, pl I played at least 500 to 1,000 games, somewhere in that span of stuff. It was insane. And, like, because some of the matchups, especially um, if anyone knows that format, the matchup versus Buzzwool for my deck was really, really hard to play, but could be, like, insanely favored if you were really good at it. But it was insanely unfavored if you were really bad at it. Or didn't know much about it so i went into the event having grinded that that matchup at least two or three hundred games like that one specifically i kind of over overplayed that matchup so every i think i hit it three or four times throughout um day one i missed that year and then in the open and i destroyed every single one so fast but then my other friend who i think were really good at the game and had played a lot more other matchups got destroyed by buzzwell when they played them and then i lost to a uh, zorark lycanroc because i hadn't tested that matchup at all and I was like, oh, maybe if I played a few games against this, I would have been able to do it. But then also in 2019, I feel like I played probably the least games and did the best. But I think that was also like due to the way the format worked. Like that <laughs> kind of, I could kind of just, like I had to play well, but like I could still win by just throwing down Judge and beating people. And like, it was a pretty straightforward deck in the grand scheme of things. So it kind of depends on your deck. If you're going in, if you're going to play Mew at Worlds this year, you might not need to play as many games, although Mew's a hard deck to play, as if you're going to play Arceus and Talion or Palkia at the event. Um, so I think you kind of have to tune it based on the kind of deck you're playing and the, the like access you have to all your cards. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, depending on, yeah, what your deck is and how experienced you already are with the deck. Like, if you're playing the deck that you played for NAIC, you don't need that many games. You, you, you know, you, you do 50 to 100 games, you're probably fine. Um, but if you're playing something brand new, so like 2017, Gardevoir GX was the big card out of the new set. You know, we had to play a lot of games with that because we didn't know the right way to build the deck or anything like that. Um, so 
you know, I probably played 200, 250 games with Gardevoir before that Worlds. But the other thing that's relevant to this discussion is, and, and something that I wanted to bring up at some point, is it's really, 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 really beneficial to play the same deck as other people that you test with. Um, because then you just get way more games, you get way more information. So uh, 2016, um, I played the same deck that Ross Cawthon played, the Bespequin Evil Tall deck uh, into the, that was like the Night March year. And, you know, maybe I played 50 games with Vespaquin Evil Tall, not that many actually, but in total, all of the people that were testing the deck played 500 games. And I didn't need to play more than the games that I played because the deck was somewhat straightforward. It played similarly to a, you know, a Vespaquin deck or a Night March deck. Um, but we were like optimizing all these little counts and talking about it so much um, that we were able to kind of disseminate and spread around uh, the the testing. And so I think it's really important to at least have, you know, two or three other people that you are working pretty intensely with for, for Worlds. Mm -hmm. um, one more point on that, because uh, the testing group thing is incredibly important. You need to have a good testing group if you want to do well. I mean, the ways testing groups have changed over the years has been interesting to see, I'm, especially in the younger divisions where a lot of kids are just coached now, um, instead of having like, groups of younger players. But one point that a lot of people don't sometimes get and feel pressure to do is don't feel pressured to play the exact same 60 cards as the people in your testing group. Please, like I, I know I've played same 58 as people and like we just did like night before day two in 2019, we just disagreed on two cards. I think I wanted to play four Judge and four Jirachi and they wanted to play a second reset stamp, which they, they thought was, uh, everyone else in my group thought was really good. But I thought that you didn't really need to disrupt to one all the time. And then at the same time, I wanted Ford Jirachi to start it more. And they were like, oh, I want one supporter that's not judged to draw cards. And I just didn't agree with that. And so we we both played uh, our own various, our, our own um, choices there. And we both did well. So you don't need to be exactly there or be arguing for hours about one like card slot that you disagree on. Just agree to disagree and play the, the differences there. But you should be working with people who are like-minded in the whole like general strategy of your deck. And for anyone listening to this, maybe this is the first time you found this episode, uh, go back and listen to last week's episode with Rahul and Xander talking about their experience as a testing group and how they all work out, because there's a lot of good insight in there if you want more on the testing group discussion. There's a lot There's a lot to it. Yeah. And kind of just wrap up that point, I don't think having... I think having a testing group throughout the whole season is obviously very helpful, but I think you can have quite a lot of success at things like regionals without really having a dedicated testing group. But I feel like the stakes are a lot higher for Worlds because every single person there has a couple people that they're working closely with. Um, and so to not have that is not, it like at a regional, it's just an advantage, I would say. But at Worlds, it's a significant disadvantage to not have that, if that kind of makes sense. No, that makes complete sense. Another thing I want to talk about metagaming real quick is, and maybe this is something that's come up this year as opposed to every other year. Like I said, I haven't actually played that many IRL years of Pokemon, but it's a general meme in the community. Oh, Europe doesn't play Marnie, right? Statistically, <laughs> Europe is going to be most of day one, or they're going to be the most represented country. Is this a real thing you ever take into consideration of like this specific region likes this type of deck? 
Or is this just like a bad meme that goes around the Twitter sphere? Like, is this something you're actually going to worry about? I wouldn't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't worry about the meme. Um, It does bring up a point, though. uh, The groups of players that you expect is kind of relevant sometimes. It's going to be the first time, at least in, in the modern day one era, that we've had a world outside of the U.S., so it will possibly be relevant. Um, usually, I like to think about it more in terms of how hard the invite was, uh, because either you're going to, if it was an easier invite, you're going to have more rounds, but the average player in the event is going to be worse in day one. And then, although if day two is the same size all the time, but then if there's less rounds, you're probably going to hit better players, but it might be easier to get it get through from a round standpoint. Like in 2017, my first Masters year, we had um, six rounds in day one. You had to go 4-2, so that wasn't that bad, but I think almost all the players I hit on day one are, are very good players. Um, and, then day t- and then 2019, we had eight rounds, so 6-2, which is kind of tough, but there were a lot of players I hit who I knew were just like the kind of players you might expect to see at an NAIC. No disrespect for them, but like the, the invite was not that bad to get, and like I felt like I had a huge testing advantage over them too. They were kind of like, when I described earlier how sometimes people aren't it might be like, okay, maybe I just play this deck because they feel like it. They kind of treated the tournament like they would any other event. They didn't treat it to the level that I did with the amount of time I put in. So I felt like I had a huge advantage going into the rounds against them. So at the end of the day, I think it averages out to there being like about uh, same difficulty to get through day one regardless, even if there's worse players but more rounds or less rounds but better players. Um, I'm expecting this one event to be less rounds because invite was hard, especially with the combined season, making it harder for people who didn't play like at all in the 2019, 2020, um, almost impossible for people who had zero points. I, I doubt anyone who had zero points got an invite in I think this season. There was one case in Europe, if I remember correctly, who did, but that's one of it those like top 16. Top UIC. UIC. Yeah, it was something like that. Yeah. Yeah, that was a player who just started. That might be the only one, but it was it would be impressive if someone did it. Um, but yeah, in Europe, it's going to be different because it'll be a, not a predominantly American player base. But I, I don't know. I don't know much about like the European average player versus the American average player. Um, so I, I assume they're probably about the same level at the end of the day. So you should just maybe an amount of people will guide that more so than um, where the people are from. Yeah, and like Europeans, quote unquote, don't play Marnie. Like, <laughs> if a European plays Arceus Intellion, they're gonna play Marnie. They're not gonna not run Marnie in their deck if they're a good player, right? <laughs> uh, if you think so, I'm just I'm thinking back to the one regional where there was like one copy of Marnie in all of top eight. <laughs> you know, it happens. One thing I will think about though is sometimes Europeans I have been not. It's not about like specific cards, but specific decks they like. I'm trying to think about examples where certain regions would like certain decks better i know when i went to germany for euic this year i was just told by people that european players love malamar so i should be considering malamar like you got to have an answer for malamar if you're going there i did not hit a malamar in swiss but (laughs) i and i played against lots of european players but i was told that that they liked the deck more than the average american player um that might be the case i don't think i can think of a a tangible example for this year though so i would not be thinking about that going into the event yeah there's always the like the stereotypes of different regions so it's always worth bringing up because it's like na players love their big beat down decks european players love either control or like the cerebral single prizers or stuff like that 
And something else that I think is interesting, because you brought up the idea of like easier year of worlds versus harder year of worlds. This year is kind of a weird one because like getting 500 CP for NA or 400 for EU isn't hard if someone got all their League Cup finishes, right? So it suddenly becomes a like, oh, are these players who are then better? Are they players who just were more front loaded? You know, it's all these other questions of like, would this be considered a hard year or an easy year? Yeah, it's a good question. And we'll kind of have to see what the numbers look like. My first reaction is that it'll be like slightly above average in difficulty. That's kind of my first thought. Mm -hmm. One of the other things I think is going to happen this year, this is just a theory, but I do think this is going to be the easiest day one to get through. Uh, this is a complete theory because I think, one, we're going to see less players than average because mm -hmm. I think Americans still predominantly have the most invites and they are much less likely to travel to, to London. I want to I say the numbers I saw, EU did have the most by like two more than NA. Or yeah, either NA most, more than two. Like, but they, they were really close. Maybe, maybe it's about the same on that. But the biggest change that I think will guide this is I think they're going to take about double the players through day one that they usually do. Because always, they've always like tried to keep it as 50% players from day one and 50% players have auto invites to day two. So they usually bring about 64 through and then about 64 auto invites. There, I think there's usually 54 and then like the 10-ish from, from Korea and Japan. But they usually like to keep that ratio even. And since they doubled the amount of players who have auto invites to day two and there's a bunch more from Japan and Korea, I think they might end up making it so you double the players from day one, which basically means you take whatever round number it would have been before and cut one off. So if you have like a, a smaller world, like a what would normally be a six round day one, it might be a five round day one. And then you got to go three, two. I don't think it'll be a five round day one, but I would probably expect a round number to be on the lower end this year. I could be completely wrong. though. Well, yeah. there's, there's also, so Diego Casaraga tweeted out of the Latam players that he's talked to, he expects 15 or less to actually go for day one, which then drastically cuts the numbers from the current projection because that's over a hundred people. You know, less than ten percent would be coming, so that also makes a massive difference. Anyway, I cut yeah, you that's off. That's always the case. So hopefully it'll be, or it'll be about what it usually is for that. Very few of them usually travel, except when it's. Uh, I think Anaheim was the year that they could go to a lot because it was cheap flights. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just I guess to again wrap this point up. Regardless of the number of invites, the biggest factor in the difficulty is just the number of rounds. And kind of like what Charlie was saying, if they want to take more people, then they make less rounds. Like the 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 Gardevoir year, 2017, that had the least amount of invites. So in theory, the players there are much better on average. But I would still say that I would rather take having to go four and two against harder people over having to go six and two against slightly weaker field, right? Like mm -hmm. winning four out of six is much easier than winning six out of eight. Like that year, I, I just pulled it up because I was curious. That year I went four and oh, day one, which was great, but I played against Finn Lynch, Mark Garcia, Frank Diaz. And then uh, I think you might not know him, Kevin. Uh, his name is Polo Lee, Polo Lee. I do because he's, he's a local, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, so those are the four people I played day one. They're all ridiculously good players. Um, but I would take that over having to go six and two against more random people 100% of the time. Oh, absolutely. Totally agree with that in, in every single way, because just at the end of the day, variance is, the, is like the case in Pokemon. 
I remember in round one in 2019, I lost to my friend David Cooper, who was also playing Picaram, very different list than me. But I knew that I had like a huge advantage in games played, huge advantage in testing, everything I was I should have won on paper, and I just lost. Like that just happens. It's Pokemon. He's a good player too. Like, but at the end of the day, it's okay. Do I have to win 75% of my games or 66% of them? Like, that's a very very big difference there. And a lot of times, like my losses I'll take on day one are not to players that I like oh, it was a super close set. It's like, oh, I just didn't draw as well as them or they they played, they drew this one out or something. Like, things will happen. And that's always just, like, the case in the game. And then you can turn around the next day and go beat the best players in the world with whatever you're doing, but just lose to variance and such. And variance is higher than, uh, variance is higher in, or worse for you in larger events than smaller ones. Those are all really good points. Stuff that I'm just kind of like sitting here digesting a bit. And <laughs> one more thing before we move on from this part is because it relates. Charlie, you kind of said, I don't know if I want to use the word conspiracy, but like this like idea that there's a chance that world, which we know for sure is two days, it's going to be Friday and Saturday. But there's a chance it sounds like you think that it could be an actual two day event between the amount of people, you know, we have over 200 then with 100 japanese players so over 200 players guaranteed their day two invite and then if you double that you know you're ending up with a a decent sized regional so i kind of want to hear is that why you're thinking like this could actually be a nine plus five day two um so if we have 227 players in day two Mm -hmm. we will have nine plus five that's just how the tournament structure works period i don't think tpci could even like do anything to stop that from happening and we know that there's like about a hundred ish from america and then i know franco takahashi said there were close to a hundred from japan not sure if that's good and, and korea not sure if that's going to be completely accurate um i know he knows what he's talking about but at the end of the day we might we might get that number we might not i personally think that would be an incredible change to the format for it and i would love for worlds to be nine plus five it makes me so sad i'm not playing this year because that would make everything so much better if you could just go through a nine round day one against the best players in the world and then six two one cut basically two top 32 um, because you have like a smaller regional type thing. And then it's like, okay, day three is just your classic regional day two. And congrats, it's about 32 players. Everybody gets top 32 prizing in it. So you go in, you have the bag, you have all the, the nice stuff that comes with that. And you're playing five more rounds, not worrying about that stuff, not worrying about having to ID for a prize not worrying about any of that, and you're just going to five more rounds, and you don't have to go X1-1. You can't lose twice, and you're out of top eight. Like, I remember at that world's, or last world, I I lost one round to a 10% chance, and I also lost to Henry Brand, and that was enough to to knock to, to end my day, even though I thought I should have been in top eight. So this little bits of variance can hurt more in um, smaller events. That is another thing. Larger events do tend to, well, harder to, like, make top eight objectively. They kind of settle variance a little bit more like i you don't it's not like you can just go o2 and the day your day's over mike what are your thoughts i know this is probably the first time you've actually heard or thought about this but you kind of are you vibing with the same concept yeah i mean i really don't know what it's going to look like i mean there's always a possibility that tpci goes the complete other way and makes day one insanely hard to get through <laughs> um to try and keep it below 228 uh I wouldn't put it past them. I mean, I hope that's not the case, but uh, I don't know. It'd be really cool. I've, all the players have always wanted Worlds to be more of a day, more like a regional structure. So it'd be really cool if that was the case here. And if it, they did do it and it went well, maybe they would try to 
you know, orchestrate it so that that was the norm going forward. And then before we move on, like I said, I wanted to end the discussion with just a little bit of general tournament tips. Are there any other world-specific things that you can think of off the top of your head that maybe you hadn't gotten to, or do you think you covered everything that you had kind of already thought about? I'm just um, Yeah. I don't think mine are very world-specific, but the biggest one is, like, please treat yourself well at this event. Like, I mean, like, physically get sleep, do things like that, which, I mean, always matter. But I feel like matters even more against at Worlds. I completely, I still remember um, at Worlds 2019, the round, it was round five or whatever. I played against Justin Bokari and we were playing the same 58 cards and we played a mirror, um, went to game three and it was close. And I had been getting on his case the entire week and before the event about not sleeping because I was treating it well for that. And he never sleeps that much. He's one of the best players in the world. And I, I think he handicapped himself sometimes with it. And he was like, I felt it at the end of the round. You're right. I should have gotten more sleep after mm-hmm. after I beat him. And I was like, okay, that yeah, it was a big advantage. I felt like just to be like mentally clear during the tournament. Um, sometimes I would not sleep before, that well before regionals and just not play well, and that happens. And I would never want to throw away a year's worth of work for not like doing the proper preparations. So eat, sleep, do all the things that you need in order to make yourself play at the best possible. Um, as, as best as you can and also when it comes to london if you haven't already booked go early i screwed this up when i went to frankfurt this year i showed up at, on thursday at noon my plane got in the tournament was on friday uh i barely made it through that event physically i was sleeping on the tables before the wrap pairings went up it was just please give time adjustments are serious if you haven't done one in a long time or haven't been over to europe before yeah, to go off of that one real quick, I went from my honeymoon directly to Worlds in 2019. So I went directly from Japan to DC. Do not recommend. I had no idea what I was doing. The fact that I did so well in day one was a, a miracle. <laughs> Do not treat a massive time difference. <laughs> like, don't take that lightly. That is a big, big, big deal. Yeah. <laughs> um, the only other thing that I had kind of written down that I wanted to share is the concept of deck choice. Um, so I wanted to kind of share the four more recent years that I played um, because they're all kind of different in concept of how I decided the deck that I ended up playing for day one. Um, so two out of the four years, in 2015, I played Night March before the Night March year. This was, you played like Mew EX in Night March and things like that. And then in 2018, I played uh, Baby Buzzwall, Garbodor, Shrine. Um, And so I think both of those years are similar because I played a deck that was a somewhat known quantity, but they were kind of like considered tier two or tier three decks going into Worlds. But me and the X-Files guys, we kind of recognized that these were these decks were underplayed and underperformed relative to the metagame that was now shaping up between NAIC and Worlds, and that if we could refine those decks, they're actually very well positioned in the metagame. So it's not that we were like creating this you know, crazy rogue deck, we were just taking known concepts that we thought were underplayed, essentially. Um, one of the years, 2016, I mentioned before, I played the Vespiquen Eviltal deck, which was a rogue deck, um, and that had like a very clear purpose of 
we want to beat Night March. That was the Night March year. And we were like, we got to beat Night March. We have to beat Waterbox, Scythematode, EX, and we need to take an okay matchup against Trevenant. So that was like a very hyper-focused deck choice where we were hard countering some things. Um, it, it was very similar to when we made The Truth in 2011 as well, where Ross mostly made The Truth. Um, he was like, you know, there's, there's really three decks in the format. We just need to come up with some way to beat them. And you could potentially take that approach this year for sure. I mean, there's... You know, there's Palkia, Intellion, Arceus, Intellion are by far the best decks. So, like, if you come up with a deck that goes, like, 80-20 against them and takes really bad matchups otherwise, it might be fine. Um, the more, the, the first example where you're taking kind of an underplayed deck, for me, I think that example might be, this year, Frank Persick's Palkia Ice Rider deck. Um, I feel like it's a, it's a really strong deck that he was really the pretty much the only one playing it and he did pretty well and i feel like that is underexplored as well so that if i was going to worlds and i wanted to take that kind of strategy that's a deck that i could would look at um and then the third type that i that i picked was the gardevoir gx year um and that was different because it was a totally new card but it was also ex kind of expected to be the best deck or at least one of the best decks but nobody really knew how to build it correctly. Um, we do have the Pokemon Go set. It doesn't really bring a huge standout star like Gardevoir, but it does have some really strong cards. And if you can figure out a way to build a deck around Radiant Charizard or Radiant Blastoise or something like that, where you're taking a new card and totally building a totally new deck, that could be another really viable strategy. So I just bring these up as these are different ways to approach your deck choice and they can all be successful mm -hmm. that also reminds me of two more things one of the other ones is just an example from this year i i legitimately think one of the best deck building like feats of all time was at naic this year with sanders mewtwo fee union deck that thing is just it's literally just a masterpiece um my friends and i have been testing that so much now and they had like an answer to everything they're like we need mew palkia arceus and mewtwo v union happened to be able to handle most of that um, they also played Eveltal, which is very important for Mew. But we were testing it, and it's like, okay, maybe I don't know how much Mew will show up for, at this world, so you might as well maybe take the Eveltal out and make the other matchups better, like against Azul's deck, make sure you can handle things that might um, turn up in the in the meantime, like Radiant Charizard, which might be able to do a lot of damage with like a Choice Belt and a Leon. Um, stuff like that is really important when it comes to building decks like that. Also, that deck had like a really defined strategy, that kind of worked like agnostic of what else was in the format. It wasn't like I play this card to counter this. It's like these decks literally cannot like beat the way that we play because they they all like fail to do more than 200 damage in a turn based on these criteria. That was the way that worked. And instead of like, oh, we play just this card to counter this and this other card to counter that. One of the other really important things that I think is especially critical at Worlds, um, if you've done testing, please trust your testing when you get into the event, especially if you make day two. I remember one of the most like important things that we had done in 2019, um, there was a huge conversation in a hotel room the night before when we were settling the last cards of our deck about the, the DDG deck, which was the ended up being the Pidgeotto control deck. But none of us had any clue what the deck was. All we heard was that it was broken and it was nothing we had ever seen before and it beat everything and it was going to win the tournament. That's all we were told. And we had no idea what it was other than it was something completely new. 
So the only like, and a lot of people were really scared. It's like, oh, it could be this. Let's play this card to counter it. It could be that, blah, blah, blah. At the end of the day, we sat down and we're like, you know, the only way to counter something we, we haven't seen is just to play, is just to do two things. One, we already felt like we had an inherent counter of, oh, maybe it's just inconsistent. You just play Judge and they whiff everything. <laughs> um, and we ended up having a good matchup, but that's because we were playing Pikaram, not, not, most, not really because of the Judge. But, um, and then the other one is just, you know, we don't really care. Um, I don't, even if we have to beat them to get through this, we trust our testing. We played more with this deck than a lot of people. Um, we can probably figure out a way to do it if, regardless of what the concept is. They definitely don't have a hard counter that makes them auto-lose, but they probably have a strategy against our deck. So if we just play well, we'll do fine. And I don't want to worry about something we either haven't seen, or even if it's something you have seen. This is a big thing that happens a lot among players who have day two invites. Um, a lot of my friends are walking, joking about walking around with binoculars in the rounds to to see every what everyone's playing and then decide based on like what the day one meta looks like. I wouldn't worry about that. I would trust your testing um, mo- almost certainly unless you have a serious problem. Play the same deck you played in um, in day one and day two. Just don't switch off from something or completely go against your own um, what your own intuition, your own testing has told you. Yeah, that's actually the last thing that I was going to say as well. Um, I have definitely have lots of regrets in my Pokemon career, um, but one of the biggest is in 2015 making it through day one with Night March and then switching to Raichu Crobat day two. Like that was so bad. Um, and Night March ended up being one of the most successful decks on day two, so huge regret. Um, I learned it that year, and then the the rest of the times that I made it through day one, I played the same deck. Um, I think it's okay to change a couple cards from day one to day two if you do make it through, um, based on kind of what Charlie was saying. Like it is relevant to look at what the day one metagame is, but I wouldn't change your deck. I would just maybe change a, a card or two to adapt to maybe what you're expecting. Absolutely. That's that nailed it right there with changing cards. The one thing we did, I remember in 2019, I took my list. I had a choice helmet in it. I forget what that was really for, but I think it helped in the mirror. But then we saw day one and there was lots of stuff with Malamar and Ultra Necrozma. So we just cut that and we put in uh, Bench Barrier Mew, which was really, really a good decision for many reasons. But it was like, okay, we're just going to tech one card to help deal with this. Maybe you have a slot that's already flexible in whatever deck you're building and you see a lot of stuff in day one and you're like, okay, I'll play the tech card for this instead of the tech card for the other thing I expected. One thing I want to add to the trust your testing bit is this came from Alex Cook when he went to NAIC with Miltank Morpico and the deck is a complete pile of trash, right? But he trusted his testing and the biggest thing that he said to one of his opponents, he told me this because he's like, I've never been such a a D word to any of my opponents in my life, but he was beating a Palkia opponent and he just said, I know this matchup better than you do. And when it comes to your testing, that's just one of those things you have to remember is you know the matchup and you probably know it better than your opponent knows the matchup. So if you've tested the thing, just trust that you've done it and you know exactly what you're doing in that specific matchup. So one last thing I want to get to. Every time we talk about tournaments on here, ever since we had Natalie Miller on, she said before every regional, she wants to go get banana bread. That is her like tradition, her superstition. So since we're talking about tournaments, I want to ask both of you, any superstitions you have? It doesn't have to be like, what do you eat or anything like that? But any superstitions you have either before or during a major tournament? It could be a regional. It could be worlds. It could be before every league challenge. Like no matter how big or small it is, Charlie, you seem like you have something. I think I'm the immediately. most superstitious player in the game, so <laughs> I, I have to 
have to view it that there was a lot of things um what was it the there was for a while i had like a shirt that i always like would wear under like whatever other thing i had and then i outgrew it so i can't do that anymore but um one of the biggest ones that i have that still stresses me out so much um is what side of the table i sit on <laughs> so this has been this this came from the regionals that i went I, at roanoke and i went 9-0 with lost march i always got the same side of the table and then the next day i sat on the other side of the table rounds one and two and i lost and it, then that just like set me off completely and now like i will I'll, if I win round one, I'll try to. St I will run to the table to sit there before my opponent. If I lose, I'm go to the other side. And it's like, okay, um, what do I have to change? Sometimes it'll be like, oh, you go to the bathroom, you wash your hands in this specific sink. You have to use the same stuff. It's so bad. And I'm like, did I do something wrong? Is that why I lost? <laughs> <laughs> so I... bad. Right? The only thing for me that like borders on superstition is I try to go to the bathroom between every single round. But usually for me, I also just kind of have a small bladder. And so like <laughs> more of a practical thing where if you have to start going to the bathroom, like if you feel the urge in the middle of a round, that's very distracting. So that's kind of my only thing. <laughs> to go off the uh, Lost March real quick, since you brought it up. This happens all the time. We have Sun and Moon Lost Thunder built at Tabletop Village. Shout out to Tabletop Village in Seattle, Washington. And it's your list. And every time we play someone new in that format, they're like, I want this. This thing is so fun. And they play one game with the deck and they're like, this is the worst pile of cards I've ever seen what, in my life. Yeah. <laughs> it's so bad. Like, I mean, I think my list was good. Like, I was talking to someone who was playing in the Sumwa tournament at a NAIC, and they did not play Elms, and I thought that was a huge mistake, because Elms was broken. <laughs> if you hit it turn one, you get you get all your hoppips, then you play it again, triple skip loom, triple jump bluff on turn two, which happened a lot during Roanoke. But yeah, that, that deck is not a good deck. I did very bad at a League Cup, like, the week after, um, and, like, it... I just will never run hotter than I did in, on that day. I went 18 and 0. It was like literally just drew the nuts every single round. <laughs> and like that, with that deck, you can do that. I know I walked in and I was like, I'm going 9 0 or 0 9. And <laughs> I was, I was kind of right, I guess. But yeah, you, you, it's not a good deck. I think I was like really encouraging you to play Lost March for that event, if I remember correctly. <laughs> I, actually, you might have been. I remember I asked it, my friend Isaiah Cheville like the night before. I was trying to get uh, cards for the Steelix Waylord control deck, but no one would lend me like the cards for it. And I was <laughs> like, I have this. I'm just going to. And I was mad at them for not lending me the cards. So I played Super Boost to counter them playing Shuckle. <laughs> so I was like, when I hit them, I'm going to Super Boost in one shot your Shuckle, and you're going you're gonna to be mad. And that, that was, I didn't hit any of those, but I, it kind of paid off, I guess. I, I sent him a list, I'm like, is this good? It was, that was probably like the one of the most last minute deck decisions I've made. <laughs> Charlie, Don't do that for once. <laughs> Charlie, if the people want more of you, where can they find you? Um, well, you can hit me up on Twitter at C4TCG. Um, you can message me on Facebook or anywhere else. I also am offering coaching right now. Um, specifically in terms of like world's performance, like I'm not going to be doing this for very long and I'm trying to help players who might be in younger divisions who where 90% of players are being coached and it's kind of like a try to keep your clients game and try, I want to teach them how to like build decks, how to metagame themselves so they don't need me anymore after this. Um, if you're interested in that, hit me up on something, um, on any of those channels and I'd be happy to help. 
can they find you on Metify or is it specifically like DM? I'm not on Metify. I'm not that good right now. So, okay. <laughs> Charlie's Twitter will be linked down below in the description on either YouTube or whatever podcast app you've got. Mike, if the people want you, where can they find more of you? You can also find me on Twitter at Mike Fouché, M-I-K-E-F-O-U-C-H-E-T. Uh, and come listen to the Trash Lunch podcast. We do very little advertising. We do not have a Twitter or anything like that, but you can find us on any of the podcast apps um spotify apple podcasts etc um trash a lanch like the garbodors attack i will happily vouch i listen to every episode every week you all should too in addition to if you found us because you found mike subscribe to ours as well yeah. uh you can find me on twitch twitter and youtube at mellow underscore magikarp this has been another episode of the lake of rage podcast catch you all next week